Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be continuing our chat about Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French military and political leader who seized power in the later stages of the French Revolution and, of course, went on to conquer half the bloody continent of Europe. So we began his story uh, last week, of course. Uh, you should go back and get across that before continuing with part two. I mean, I say this every single time, mate. Why Why would you listen to part two of something without listening to part one? Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, quick refresher for what we got across last week. Napoleon, uh, born on Corsica, which had only very recently come under the, under the control of the French uh, at the time of his birth. He was nearly born an Italian. Uh, he was bullied as a young kid at school for his Corsican accent and, and less than perfect grasp of the French language. And he grew up to study at the French Military Academy and then ultimately became an artillery officer and then commander serving the Royal Army uh, before the revolution and then eventually falling in on the side of the revolutionaries when uh, when the revolution came along. And he rose through the ranks, went off campaigning against a favoured enemy of his, the Austrians, loved to fight the Austrians, and he pulled, uh, he pulled their pants down on plenty of occasions, fighting them across northern Italy and into Austria itself. Also campaigned in Egypt, although much less effectively. There weren't any Austrians for him to fight in Egypt, so he didn't do quite as well. Uh, the British Royal Navy was able to put pay to Napoleon's ideas about uh, French expansion into the Mediterranean. So Napoleon, largely speaking for most of his career, focused instead on land-based conquest. And let me tell you, he did a very bloody good job of it, fighting you know war after war and, and winning a lot of them. And after a brief period of peace at the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon got stuck straight back in. He's now in charge of France. He fought the British. He fought the Prussians. He fought the Russians. And of course, he fought the Austrians. Love to do that. And he won more or less every single land battle he fought. He lost a couple here and there, but broadly speaking, this bloke was unstoppable. His Grande Armée spread east, expanding French-controlled territory across German-speaking Europe, causing the fall of the Holy Roman Empire, intimidating Russia into an alliance with France. And back at home, Napoleon's political successes just mounted. They kept piling up. He proclaimed himself Emperor of the French. He rigged plebiscites in order to back up this claim. And people loved the bloke. I'll tell you this. France was riding high, winning wars, bringing home wealth, expanding its power and influence. It's all coming up, Napoleon, mate. And we left off last week's story in 1809 at the end of the War of the Fifth Coalition, when Napoleon had once again, once again, just absolutely dumpstered the Austrians. Uh, he'd forced the British to withdraw. He'd entrenched France's seemingly untouchable position on the continent. And Napoleon, at this point, near invincible in battle. His military genius had brought him victory after victory. And by this point in 1809, France controlled not just its French homelands, the sort of area that we'd associate with France today, but much of the remnants of the newly destroyed Holy Roman Empire, the Low Countries, so that is to say modern-day uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, most of the Italian peninsula, most of the Iberian peninsula, and it pushed uh, and, and, and was pushing further, further, further east constantly, right? But he's not finished yet because France would keep growing, as I say, until 1812. But, I mean, we've got plenty of stuff to talk about before we actually get to the territorial apex of uh, the French Empire. And today we'll, we're not just going to talk about, you know, the the territorial apex under Napoleon that the French enjoyed, but also his downfall, of course, his return, and then ultimate fate after the famous 
Battle of Waterloo. But that's not where I want to start. We will get to all of the uh, all the fighting, all the blood and guts and horrible murder, of course. But I want to start off by talking about something a little different. Some of the stuff that we left out last week, which is Napoleon's legacy as a domestic leader in France. I want to talk about some of his achievements there. So let's get to it. Let's. Uh, I mean, obviously, so much to get across today. Let's not waste any time. Here we go. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 1809. That's where we left off uh, our story last week. The War of the Fifth Coalition has just ended. And we're in for a brief period of relative peace in Europe. For the next couple of years, Napoleon instead focused on domestic affairs. And, uh, well, I guess one affair in particular uh, really stuck in his mind. This was an affair to do with his wife, Josephine, the main thing on his mind around this time. But we'll come to that in due course because in 1809, I want to talk about about some other stuff. And in 1809... The a lot of the I guess the the, the culmination of a lot of uh, Napoleon's achievements came together in the official renaming of his realm. It became the French Empire. It abandoned all pretense that it had at being a republic. I mean, it was a republic in name, but an empire in in basically everything but name. Um, and Napoleon in eighteen oh nine, he again, as I say, abandoned all pretense. He had been crowned emperor years previous, but now he's in the empire business. He's calling it the French Empire, and so it was. The change in name largely superficial, but it was a you know a symbolic shift in in the way that Napoleon viewed not just himself but his realm. Um, but you know when we talk about the domestic uh, achievements of Napoleon, you know while he had. While he renamed his his realm an empire in, in 1809, certainly he'd been working very hard on changing his realm in other ways for many years before 1809. And these reforms and these changes and, and, and the other stuff that France went through, all very I mean, critically important, not just to France, but broader, broad, more broadly speaking, Europe and in some cases the world. And nowhere is this more evident than in what is perhaps Napoleon's greatest achievement and an achievement that is often overlooked because, you know, we do like to focus on the battles and the wars and the, and, and the, the blood and the guts. But one of the most important achievements of Napoleon didn't take place on the battlefield. No, it was the implementation of a series of laws known as the Napoleonic Code, a civil code, essentially a civil code of laws that is still in force in France today, although, of course, it's been heavily amended and it's been changed enormously over the years. But it's very difficult to overstate the importance of the Napoleonic Code because it was designed to replace France's patchwork system of feudal laws and the, the remnants of the absolute monarchy that had, that had run before the revolution, before Napoleon. But in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, the Napoleonic Code spread so much further than just France. Because it was extremely influential in, across the entire world as nations old and new alike amended their legal systems or established in some cases their legal systems with reforms based on Napoleon's new civil code. It wasn't the first civil code of laws. I mean, you know, civil codes date all the way back to classical history and, and, and the Romans and Justinian. I mean, they've been around a long time before Napoleon. But Napoleon's code, the Napoleonic code, this one stuck. And the, the world in which we live today, the modern, the modern world, still very heavily influenced by the, by the legal reforms of Napoleon 
at this point in history over 200 years ago. And Napoleon, I mean, he knew, he knew he'd done something incredible. He was extremely proud of his legal reforms. And I think he'd be very pleased to see how well it has done today, all the way through to today in the modern era. But many listeners I know will be listening, going, what are you talking about, mate? I've never heard of this. What are you talking about, Napoleonic Code, civil law? What's this got to do with anything? I've never heard of this. Can't be that important. I mean, if it's that important, why haven't you heard of it, right? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why you haven't heard of it. And I'll tell you why so many listeners today will, uh, to this podcast will have not come across its influence. And the very simple reason for it is that you speak English. And of course, while half our history has plenty of listeners from non-English speaking nations, good to have you, you know, lots of, lots of uh, listeners from all around the world, the majority of listeners of this podcast are from the US or the UK or Australia or other English speaking nations or regions of the world, Canada, New Zealand, etc. right? And these regions, of course, have had a huge amount of influence from the British not the French, throughout their histories, and therefore never adopted a civil code like Napoleon's, they have stuck with their tradition of common law or case law, which of course has been inherited by the historical influence of the British or the English. Many of these former colonies, many English-speaking places on earth have this tradition of common law. And, you know, former colonies like Australia, like Canada, like uh, India, still have common law systems because they weren't as heavily influenced by the French as they were by the English or the British. But in other parts of the world, I mean, you know, particularly in Napoleon's time in continental Europe, they didn't have a choice. Napoleon enforced his civil code wherever he went. All the lands that he conquered were brought under the Napoleonic Code. But later on, as Napoleon's influence, you know, sort of fell away, the influence of his civil code stuck around. And as governments sprang up in his wake across Europe and across, you know, the Americas, they followed in his footsteps and established legal systems that were based on the reforms that Napoleon made. South American republics, French-speaking parts of North America like Louisiana and Quebec, Central America, the Caribbean, all these places adopted codes influenced by Napoleon. The Spanish and the Portuguese spread civil codes into Asia, where they can still be found in nations like Indonesia and the Philippines. Major Asian nations like China and Japan and Korea, they took their cues from the German civil code, which in turn was, of course, a direct consequence of Napoleon. So a huge proportion of the world, then, has a legal system that is based on, or at least heavily influenced by, the Napoleonic Code. But much of the English-speaking world doesn't realise this because we idiot Anglophones instead have a system, as that, again, as, that I, as I said, is referred to as common law or case law. And there are lots of key differences between the two systems and the division also isn't always very clear. Many nations have hybrid systems like South Africa. But the baseline is that civil law relies heavily on legislation, while common law relies heavily on courts and cases and precedents. And most civil law systems around the world trace their origins or at least have been strongly impacted by Napoleon. And as I say, he was prouder of his legal reforms, of this Napoleonic code, than he was of anything else he did. And rightly so, as far as I'm concerned. This is what he had to say on the matter. My true glory is not to have won 40 battles. Waterloo will erase the memory of so many victories. But what will live forever is my civil code. Anyway, It wasn't just world-changing legal reforms that Napoleon instituted. He also established France's first central bank, 
He developed French in, French infrastructure with, with roads and sewers, and he encouraged religious tolerance and strongly secular government throughout his realm. He was also a great supporter of the metric system, and the vast territory that he ruled and conquered was made to adopt it. Much of the metric system's modern-day success can once again be traced back to Napoleon and his enthusiastic support for it, plus that, I mean, that plus the fact that, you know, the system actually makes sense rather than forcing you to calculate how many fluid square ounces there are in a quarter furlong or whatever. But Napoleon, I mean, his reforms, as I say, went well beyond influencing just the realm that he ruled and, and the territory that he oversaw and had conquered. It, it, they spread throughout the world. And, and another example of this is his educational reforms. He instituted massive changes in the French schooling systems, uh, secularizing education, supporting secondary schools in particular, giving young people the option to stay in school longer than ever before, focusing on, on science and language and mathematics. These subjects were prioritized over former popular subjects like religious studies. And the French education system was the best in the world as a result of what Napoleon did to it. Just like with his civil code, other nations quickly caught up to this fact. They adopted Napoleon's approach to education. And modern education systems, even today, owe a lot to his structured and focused efforts to raise the education levels of all the people that he ruled. When people refer to Napoleon as an enlightened despot, it's because of reasons like this. We're going to come in the end to the end of this episode to what Napoleon's legacy really is. And while there are certainly many black marks against his name in the history books, Napoleon was nonetheless responsible for some pretty serious progress, not just again in French history, but also in the history of Europe and very broadly the world as well. Anyway, the other area that we need to talk about, of course, when it comes to Napoleon's reforms, as you may have guessed, are, of course, his reforms that were military in nature. With Napoleon's background in artillery, he revolutionized the use and importance of artillery on the battlefield. He pioneered techniques that made artillery more mobile and more effective than it ever had been before. And this changed the face of European warfare. Rather than infantry slamming against each other, hoping to wear the other down, Napoleon used his artillery to break opposing infantry lines before then moving cavalry into the breaches created by these artillery strikes. But his military reforms weren't just restricted to artillery. He changed the way he changed the French approach to unit organization and composition. He changed the way that French officers were assigned and promoted. And I guess more broadly, he changed the way that the French fought wars altogether. And in doing so, as I mentioned, changed the way that Europeans fought wars because most of Europe at this point in history were fighting the French and so had to catch up one way or the other. Napoleon's aggressive marches, the way that he would attack out of nowhere, saw enemy armies taken by surprise and annihilated before they could properly retreat. And this marked a shift in the, again, in, in the way that war was fought. Previously, annihilation or destruction of an enemy army wasn't really something that was on the cards. You would you would beat them, you would outmaneuver them, you would force them to withdraw, maybe rout and take as many prisoners or, or you know force through as many casualties as you could. But the destruction of an entire army wasn't really something that was often done you know during this period of warfare. But Napoleon changed this by pursuing annihilation of his foes rather than just rather than just victory over them. He made defeats so costly that you just couldn't afford to lose against France. And again, this changed the text, the timbre, the, the atmosphere of warfare because 
of how high the stakes were raised when you went against someone like Napoleon. And as we talked about last week, at this point in his career, he felt unstoppable. His sweeping military reforms played a huge part in his aura of invincibility because he's just on another level altogether, this bloke. Like when he takes to the battlefield, he is just playing a completely different game. However, there is one big problem that Napoleon is facing that no amount of political or social or educational, legal or military reforms is going to help solve for him. Because try as he might, he and his wife Josephine just cannot have a kid. Josephine just cannot get pregnant. The Empress is unable to provide Napoleon with an heir. And I'll tell you what, he bloody needs one because he's set up this hereditary empire. He's set up a system where his family can continue to govern France and he still doesn't have a kid. And it seemed like he wouldn't be able to have one with Josephine. He still loved her. I mean, the two of them had had affairs, like I mentioned, and the love letters that I spoke about last week sort of dried up a little bit as time passed. But they remain together and they still seem to be very much in love. But their childlessness, it put a fatal strain on their marriage. Napoleon just couldn't deal with the fact that he didn't have someone to pass his empire on to. And so ultimately, in 1809, again, this very important year, Napoleon made the decision to divorce Josephine for the sake of his realm. He approached Josephine in late 1809, informed informed her of his decision, and she agreed that it was the best thing for the realm, for France, and so agreed to the divorce. And in 1810, their divorce was finalised in a huge and very sombre ceremony where the two of them read out statements of commitment to each other, which is a very weird thing to do at a divorce. But, I mean, the two of them still in love, just for the good of the realm, couldn't stay together. Instead, Napoleon very quickly married an Austrian duchess, Marie-Louise. This was to formalise an alliance between the French and the defeated Austrians. But at Napoleon's insistence, even after he remarried, Josephine retained her title of empress. I mean, I don't know how Marie-Louise felt about that. Probably not that great. Napoleon did describe the marriage by saying, it is a womb that I'm marrying. So, you know... I mean, they they say that, you know, the French are the most romantic people on earth, but certainly one of the most famous French people from history, not much of a romantic when he's coming out with stuff like that after getting married anyway. Napoleon's marriage to Marie-Louise, it gave him what he wanted, however, and that not, you know, when I say it gave him what he wanted, that did, I'm not talking about an, an alliance with Austria. It did give him a child. In 1811, Marie-Louise gave birth to a son known to history as Napoleon II, although he never ruled anything, as, as you'll discover in due course. But that meant that everything was sorted out on the home front. Massive reforms, new wife and heir sorted out. Napoleon's attention once again turned to the international front after this had all taken place. And last week, I talked about the alliance that he'd struck with Russia. You remember this. This alliance was coming apart at the seams and was more or less the, the focal point for renewed hostilities on the European continent. The Russian economy was falling apart and they weren't enforcing Napoleon's ban on trade with the British, obviously the the continental system, against something we discussed last week. Uh, In an effort to sort of keep the economy limping on, they were accepting what was effectively under Napoleon illegal trade with the British. Now, 
the Russians were not enamoured by the French, even with this alliance, shaky alliance in place. And the Russians started to whisper about breaking this alliance and invading French-controlled Poland. Napoleon, he's not going to take this lying down. He grew his Grande Armée to an even bigger size, 450,000 soldiers, nearly half a million men. And he made ready to march on these Russians. Again, very, very quickly responding to a change in the political temperature of the continent. Very ready to get on the front foot and make sure that he took the initiative. However, marching on Russia. Look, I'm just going to give you a piece of good general advice here. It's, it's the best kind of advice. It's unsolicited advice. But I do really feel like it's a lesson worth learning. Because I just want to tell you, look. Some of the most, I mean, some of the most famous world leaders have routinely ignored this advice throughout history and they've paid a very steep price for it. And that lesson is, as various politicians of generals have been quoted as saying over the years, don't bloody march on Moscow, mate. Napoleon ignored this advice, Hitler ignored this advice, advice, and both of them got absolutely annihilated when attacking the Russian heartland. War returned to Europe in 1812, in June, when the French marched east to, uh, to meet the Russians. Uh, the Russians, however, not wanting to meet the French in open battle, withdrew from their forward positions, and Napoleon gave chase, chasing them all the way back to their capital of Moscow. And what's more, the Russians, as heartless as, as, as ever, they left behind a trail of desolation as they withdrew. They scorched the earth to make it difficult for the French, the French to provision themselves as they were drawn further and further into Russia. At last, the armies fought and met outside of Moscow, and while the French did win the day, it was a vicious and a bloody battle that left around 80,000 troops dead. And the Russians weren't even decisively beaten at this point. They withdrew further, and while Napoleon did seize Moscow, he couldn't hold it, because the Russians burnt it to the ground rather than let it fall to the French. So the French couldn't stay. They couldn't provision themselves after the scorched earth policy of the Russians. They couldn't hold on to this city that was now in ruins thanks to the Russians you know, destroying it rather than letting it fall into enemy hands. And as it was late in the year, the brutal, bitter Russian winter was on its way. And Moscow, being virtually uninhabitable to the French, Napoleon realised what he had to do. He had to withdraw. So... He pulled his troops, or attempted to pull his troops, out of Russia, back towards France, marching them through knee-high snow in early November, and his losses were catastrophic. During this westward march, after, you know, taking Moscow from the Russians as successful as he had, on the march back, the French soldiers dropped like flies. 10,000 troops died in one single night on the 8th and the 9th of November, freezing to death. Over 400,000 troops had marched eastward in June. 40,000 returned. 10% of the troops that Napoleon had marched into Russia returned with him safely as winter came to Europe. And this, you won't be surprised to learn, was the beginning of the end for Napoleon. After a crushing defeat in Russia, you can say it with me, it only got worse from there. Napoleon's losses in Russia inspired his old foes to band together once again. Russia was joined by Prussia and Austria and Sweden and Spain and Portugal and, of course, Great Britain, who formed the Sixth Coalition. 
and the war of the Sixth Coalition was fought in 1813. And despite Napoleon somehow raising 350,000 troops to fight, despite him pulling off yet more stunning victories against the Coalition during this war, it wasn't enough. Because the largest battle of the Napoleonic Wars, the entire conflict, the, the largest battle that took place throughout Napoleon's entire reign, the Battle of Leipzig, it saw over half a million soldiers take to the field. And this time, the French were heavily outnumbered. And Napoleon was defeated in Leipzig and was offered peace by the coalition at a very steep cost, a cost that he refused to pay. The coalition offered him peace if he surrendered all of the land, all of the territory that he had conquered, reducing France to its historical borders, including Belgium and the Rhineland. Now, many people close to Napoleon advised him very strongly to take this deal. They said that they, they saw that the tide had turned against the French, that they weren't going to win this war, that the overpowering superiority enjoyed by the coalition here would ultimately bring about the downfall of the French. And so they advised Napoleon very earnestly, take this deal, it's the best we're going to get. But Napoleon refused the offer. And so the coalition took it off the table. And in spite of Napoleon's headstrong certainty that the winds would change and that the French would rally and that they would come back up against the coalition and emerge victorious, of course, the war only got worse, and the French began to lose battle after battle and were pushed further and further back by the might of the coalition. And ultimately, Napoleon realised he'd really cocked this one up. He realised that he should have taken the deal when it was on the table, and so he approached the coalition and said, listen, um, can we just, you know, let's just wind the clock back a little bit. I, I will take that deal. I will settle for what you offered before. And the coalition, of course, realised now, well, absolutely not. It's not, the offer's, offer's not on the table, mate. Not, not anymore. If you want peace now, you're going to have to relinquish even more territory. You're going to have to relinquish territories like Belgium. Once again, Napoleon looked at this deal that was on the table, and once again, he refused it. He just did not know when to cut his losses. The tide had turned. Napoleon hadn't acted quick enough to quit while he... Well, I was going to say quit while he was ahead. He wasn't ahead. At least quit while he wasn't that far behind. But now, with Napoleon having refused another peace settlement with the coalition, he had nowhere left to turn. He had nowhere left to go. The coalition were bearing down at this point on the French heartlands. Napoleon had 70,000 troops left. 20% of the army that he'd raised at the beginning of this war remained. And he was forced to withdraw to, with them into the French heartlands, as I say, as the coalition closed in. Napoleon fought tooth and nail to save his realm, but the coalition had an impossible numerical advantage and slowly but surely marched on Paris despite Napoleon's best efforts to resist. And on the 31st of March in 1814, Paris fell to the coalition and when Napoleon attempted to, attempted to rouse his remaining men and, and march on Paris and liberate it from these invaders, the senior officers mutinied. Despite the French rank and file being willing to follow their emperor to the ends of the earth, the seasoned military officers of his armies recognised that the war was lost. And so they refused to take one step further on Napoleon's orders. And so finally, 
Napoleon read the writing on the wall, he realised that the war was lost, and so he abdicated as the Emperor of the French on the 4th of April, 1814. The War of the Sixth Coalition was lost, and the treaty that followed it, the Treaty of Fontainebleau, saw Napoleon exiled to Elba, which is a small island between the Italian peninsula and Corsica, his birthplace. Napoleon, however, hated the idea of being sent into exile, absolutely hated the shame, the ignominy of being sent away to live out the rest of his life in exile. He couldn't stand it. His pride couldn't allow him to fall so far from the greatness he had achieved. And so he decided and then attempted to take his own life. While fighting in Russia years previously, Napoleon had actually been taken prisoner very briefly. And ever since then, he had carried around a suicide pill in case he was in a position like that where he wanted to take his own life. And that position had indeed come as he was taken into the the custody of the coalition. And so he took this suicide pill, willing and ready to end his life, but it didn't work. The pill was so old by now, it had lost its potency and it didn't kill him. It just made him very sick. He survived, he lived, and he was sent into exile. He was exiled at the end of May in 1814 and replaced as the French leader by Louis XVIII, brother of Louis XVI, who, of course, had his head chopped off during the Revolution. In Elba, Napoleon was given sovereignty over the island, which was made a principality with with Napoleon at its head. And uh, he was also given a hefty pension, a small guard of 900 troops or so, and he was permitted to continue to call himself emperor. Now, look, I don't know how he felt about this situation, but I'll tell you, he he got on in earnest with the governance of his new realm, as small as it was. And it won't surprise you, it's very characteristic of him. He started doing things like building roads, developing farms and mines. He, he overhauled the island's legal system and its education system. But he was also struck with grief because he learnt not long after having moved to Elba that Josephine, his former wife, had died the day before he arrived on the island. And things got worse when he heard rumours that he was to be moved from Elba to a more remote island somewhere, this time in the the middle of the Atlantic. Well, he wasn't going to let that happen. After 10 months on Elba, Napoleon carried out a daring escape from the island, gathering hundreds of his men, commandeering a British ship, and sailing from Elba, returning to France. When news of his escape spread, a French regiment was dispatched to the south of France to intercept him, And this proved to be a bad move, because when the regiment confronted Napoleon, he got off his horse, he marched towards them in range of their guns, and he declared, here I am, kill your emperor if you wish. The soldiers instead celebrated joyously. They fell behind the returned emperor. They forgot about their loyalty to the newly restored Bourbon King Louis XVIII, and they joined Napoleon as he marched towards Paris to take back his throne. And as he marched north, more and more soldiers joined the emperor, happily abandoning Louis XVIII, who, you know, very sensibly seeing which way the wind was blowing, fled Paris at top speed, fled into Belgium. Napoleon made a triumphant return into Paris on the 20th of March, 1815, and returned himself again to the position of French emperor. And you'll never guess what his first order of business was. He did what he did best, 
raised troops and got ready to take the fight to his enemies. His enemies, however, were not sitting around. Austria and Prussia and Russia and Britain, they all got together, pledged 150,000 troops each to fight Napoleon and began the War of the Seventh Coalition, or to give it its more common name in history, the Hundred Days. The coalition once again drew up plans for another invasion of France, but this time Napoleon wasn't going to be caught with his pants down. He beat them to the punch. In characteristic fashion, he seized the initiative and he went on the offensive. He decided to mount, to mount a preemptive strike on his enemies while they were still organising themselves. This is a technique that had served him very well in previous wars, and he put it in. He put it to use now. He mobilised two hundred thousand of the troops that he'd gathered in the short time since returning to power, and he marched into the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, the part that makes up today's Belgium, and he began the Waterloo campaign. And I mean, already you don't have to be a a dedicated student of history to know that Napoleon entering the Waterloo campaign, uh, it's it's really not going to go too well for him at all. And in one of the most famous battles in history, Napoleon was finally defeated once and for all during the Battle of Waterloo on the 18th of June, 1815. The British, led by the famous Duke of Wellington, were able to hold firm against the French repeated attacks and they were bolstered later on in the evening by Prussian reinforcements who turned the tide of the battle decisively, routing the French and sending them packing. Napoleon's best efforts to catch his enemies unprepared had not bloody worked. The coalition had proven equal to his challenge. The French were roundly defeated at Waterloo. And this was, once and for all, the end of Napoleon. He retreated to Paris to drum up further support for his campaign, but by now it was too late. Despite his triumphant return in March, his his defeat at Waterloo was fatal to his efforts to restore himself to his former glory. He no longer had the widespread support of the French people, And realising that the wind was no longer in his sails, Napoleon once again abdicated on the 22nd of June. Now, very interestingly, at this point, Napoleon considered fleeing. He knew that he was going to be in big trouble if he was captured, particularly if it was the Prussians who captured him, who had put out a very, very clear notice saying they were happy to take Napoleon dead or alive. And so he considered running not just from France, but from Europe and fleeing all the way across the North Atlantic into the United States. However, he wasn't able to exit France because the British had blockaded every single French port and he didn't have anywhere to go. He was forced, once again, to surrender himself into the custody of the coalition and this time, the coalition didn't take any chances. They exiled Napoleon to a tiny, tiny island in the middle of the southern Atlantic called St. Helena. And there, Napoleon was guarded by a garrison of British soldiers, and he was made to live in a run-down old mansion on the island. What a fall from grace for him. The mansion was damp and drafty. His access to French reading materials was heavily restricted. Many gifts that were sent to him were returned to sender. And anyone who wanted to visit him, have a listen to this, anyone who wanted to visit Napoleon on St. Helena was told that they would never be able to leave the island again, ever. But Napoleon, despite being despondent and miserable, he 
He did his best to just get on with things. He learned English so he'd be able to read the books and the newspapers on St. Helena. He wrote books of his own. He wrote a book about Julius Caesar. He also wrote his memoirs, which, well, look, I'll just put it this way. If, If you've ever doubted that Napoleon was, you know, if you've ever doubted the fact that he was his biggest fan, just have a look at what he wrote about himself in his memoirs. There is no doubt whatsoever that Napoleon had many, many tickets on himself. This bloke really was his own biggest fan. But he never made a serious attempt to escape St. Helena. He probably realised that it was futile. And in time, both his physical and his mental health began to decline. Living in a damp, unkempt mansion might have made Napoleon unwell. Certainly, the isolation from the rest of the world took its toll on the great conqueror, and he became more and more depressed as the months turned into years. I mean, he's not even that old at this point. He was in his mid-40s when he was exiled. But by the time he turned 50, he was in a very bad way. In early 1821, his health got even worse. It took a real turn, and by March, he couldn't even get out of bed. And then finally, on the 5th of May, 1821, Napoleon died. And interestingly, we don't know for certain what did it. He may have had stomach cancer. His father also died of stomach cancer. His health may have been worn down due to his poor living conditions, or he may have even been quietly poisoned by the British who wanted to get rid of him once and for all, although more recent research has discredited this rather long-held theory about him. But look, we don't know. We probably never will know for sure. But whatever the case, the great conqueror finally passed away at the age of just 51. And after a brief period of burial in St. Helena in 1841, Napoleon's remains were exhumed. They were transported to France. They were led through Paris as part of a huge parade. And then they were laid to rest in in Paris itself. And and since 1861, Napoleon's remains have been held at Les Invalides, a, a huge museum complex in Paris where you can go and visit them even today. But in talking about the legacy that Napoleon left behind, where do we even begin? With the broader view that the last 200 years have allowed us to take of Napoleon's realm and his regime and his approach to leadership, there is still no consensus whatsoever as to what Napoleon's legacy truly is. He is loved and hated in equal measure, sometimes concurrently, And the evaluation of his achievements spanned from him being characterised as, quote, an enlightened despot who laid the foundations of modern Europe all the way through to a megalomaniac who wrought greater misery than any man before the coming of Hitler. And certainly there is no end really to the criticism that you can make of this bloke, reinstituting slavery throughout his realm, plundering the areas he conquered, the death of millions throughout his aggressive campaigns of conquest. I mean, the list goes on. But on the other hand, he dragged France so far forward into the future, abolishing absolutism and and feudalism. He instituted sweeping reforms that change not just France or Europe, but most of the world. We talked about his civil code, its influences. We talked about his educational reforms. We talked about his secularization. He was a believer in meritocracy, equality before the law, personal property rights, the public service. These are things that today we take for granted. But without Napoleon, 
perhaps they never would have become as firmly entrenched in modern civilization as they are. I can't hope to sum up Napoleon's career, his achievements, his legacy, all that he was and did in one neat little package here. We've raced through his story at a blistering pace over the last two weeks and and barely scratched the surface of it, really. But I think it is fair to say that he had a mixed legacy and wrought a lot of very terrible things to go along with the great. However, were he able to see his legacy today? Were he able to see that despite the way that history both adores and reviles him, no one seriously argues against the importance of his achievements? And were he to see that, I think he might be close to satisfied with what he did with his time on earth. Undoubtedly, greatness is what he sought in life, but not just any greatness, an enduring greatness, a greatness that stands the test of time, a greatness that I do believe he achieved. And I think Napoleon would be happy with that, because as he himself once said, greatness is nothing unless it be lasting. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is finally the end of the story of Napoleon, the Emperor of the French. And holy moly, what a story it was. Again, I do feel like we barely scratched the surface. I got through as much of the important stuff as I could, but there is so much more about this bloke. And of course, I really do feel like I, I mean, last week, the did a great injustice to the French Revolution, one of the most important, uh, one of the most important historical events to have taken place in uh, in the last couple of centuries. And again, barely touched upon it so look good to get across these hugely important and 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 significant figures from from history but it does leave you want more so i do uh, i do recommend that uh, you do you know any further research you might be interested uh, in about napoleon i mean i would happily keep talking about the bloke but that would be it i mean you know it wouldn't just be part one and two it'd be part one two three four five six seven eight who knows how many right so much to get across with this bloke so i do hope you got something out of it maybe you know a little bit more about napoleon now than you did two weeks ago and if that's the case hey I'll chalk it up as a W. Anyway, that is that for another week of Half House History. Once again, of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. Regular listeners will know that you can go to halfhousehistory.net and find all the stuff that you need to know about the website. About the well, about the website. Sure, I mean you'll find all the stuff you need to know about the website if that's where you're going to learn about web development. There are certainly better ways to do it, but halfhousehistory.net, I guess, is a good example of what you can do with WordPress themes if you're interested. Uh, no, it's there you can go and find out everything you need to know about the podcast. You can get uh, you can get access to old uh, episodes going all the way back to episode number one. There's a contact form there, of course, as well. If you want to send in topic suggestions, thank you so much to all the people who are doing so. I read every single email I get, of course. Um, And there are links on the website as well to a couple of places that I would love to direct your attention towards. Firstly, the merch shop. Uh, You can go and buy merchandise there if you'd like to support the show in a financial sense. And if you'd like to support the show even more directly, the Patreon is available for you to join up. It's there you can gain access to all sorts of exclusive member benefits like early access to shows and show notes and and, and behind-the-scenes stuff as well as exclusive Patreon-only merch. Had a bunch of new Patreons recently, and I really do very much appreciate everyone jumping on board. If you'd like to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash history. And for as little as $2 a month, two American dollars a month, you can gain access to some of these benefits so i do very very much recommend it to your attention if you want to get across that it's greatly appreciated anyway for those who uh, are listening uh as you know freeloaders 
that's fine. As long as you're doing your bit by spreading the good word of half us history, that's, I mean, that's, I can't put a price on that. Can't put a price on that. Well, you probably could actually, because then if you tell someone in the neighbor, come a patron, that's worth like, you know, five bucks a month to me. So you can put a price on it sometimes, but I appreciate all the people who are going around spreading the word of half us history. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. And of course, Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. That is that for another week of Half Hour History. Looking forward to your company next week as we get across another major historical figure. But until then, leaving with the question posed on Reddit, this one comes to us from Writing with Spears, who asks, Why didn't Napoleon use his dynamite at the Battle of Waterloo? <laughs>